At the end of last year, just before the holidays, I packed a bag, got in my car, and I went home. Home for me is Pennsylvania, in my parents' house where I grew up. It's where I went sledding on the hill behind our yard. It's where I smashed up my elbows trying to stick a wheelie in the street. It's where I mowed my neighbor's lawn for cash on the weekends. But it's also where I played video games all day in the basement. It's where I dressed up like Street Fighter characters for Halloween. It's where I won the World Series with the Philadelphia Phillies in Sega's World Series Baseball. So many of my memories of home, good and bad, on my own and with my friends, are tied to video games. This past trip, I brought with me an early Christmas present that my partner had given to me a week earlier, an SNES classic. When my brother and sister-in-law came over with my nieces and nephew, I plugged it in. For the first time in more than 20 years, my brother, my father, and I played Street Fighter together. My five-year-old nephew joined in. Three generations gathered around a Nintendo at home I'm Brian Fabry-Dorsum, and this is Character Creator, a monthly podcast about video game characters and the people who create them. This month, going home. Of course, home isn't just a place, it's an idea. And it's an idea that video games have engaged with for decades. This month, I spoke with three people, a gamer, a developer, and a critic, about the ways in which video games and home intersect. Level one, genocide on Turtle Island. I'm on my phone, at home, playing a 2D side-scroller called Thunderbird Strike. It came out last year for PC, iOS, and Android. In it, you play as a Thunderbird, a massive winged creature who soars through thunderclouds to gather electric energy. Your job as the player is to use that energy to release bolts of lightning and destroy the industrial machines and buildings that have torn up the natural landscape below. The mechanics of the game are straightforward, but there's more to Thunderbird Strike than meets the thumbs. Ani, my name is Beth Laponce. I am both Anishinaabe and Métis, and I am a game designer, artist, and writer. Beth designed Thunderbird Strike over a two-year period beginning in 2015, but when I spoke to her on the phone, I asked her first about where she grew up. I was actually born and raised on the West Coast, and I grew up in an urban indigenous community in Portland, Oregon, where there are a lot of Anishinaabeg, actually. There's like just a lot of people from all over, from Whiters and Turtle Mountain, and then my family is from Bawating uh, up north uh, across uh, Michigan and Ontario. So I grew up around uh, many different elders and storytellers who are just from different places, stretching from the coast out to the Great Lakes. Beth always loved playing video games growing up, but it was actually her negative experiences that drove her toward game design later on. When I play games, I was looking for characters to identify with, and there just weren't very many. And when they were there, it was always sort of this double-edged thing, where it's like you're really happy to be represented, but then it's also done badly, so it's like, oh, cool, yay, or like, 
in this fighting game, but also it's not the best representation. And so um, I remember very early on I was sneaking into conferences because that's what a rebel I am, right? That's the kind of stuff I was doing as a teen. I was smoking at this conference to give a presentation and nobody knows I'm not a graduate student. So um, I was giving presentations about representations in video games, and I very quickly realized that if anything was going to change, if anyone was going to have the kinds of representations that I wanted to see in games, I actually just have to do it myself. So when Beth designed Thunderbird Strike last year, she set it in a place called Turtle Island. When I first played the game, I wondered where this place was, so I looked it up. It turns out it was a lot closer than I thought. Turtle Island is a modern way of referring to all of the Americas from an indigenous lens. And the thing of it is, is like some people say it comes, it does come from teachings, but actually the phrase Turtle Island and because it's in English is something that's more uh, recent and and shared um, across peoples. So really the game takes place from the tar sands in Alberta reaching down to the Great Lakes. And Turtle Island is represented because the water is all connected. And if there were to be, for example, a spill or some kind of breakage at the dam at the Boreal Forest, there's a dam up there that holds um, sludge and runoff from the tar sands up there. It has arsenic and all sorts of stuff in it. And if that were to break, and as we know, dams can break, that's a possibility, it would destroy all of the water purification system for all of us. You know, it isn't just an isolated situation where it's like, oh, there's a community that might be affected. This is for everyone. So it really does concern everyone. And, you know, clean water needs to be at the lead for all people, certainly. So really, the work was about passing on the voices and messages and stories of community members. The other piece of it is that while I was working on the game, uh, there, you know, Standing Rock happened. So that was huge. Uh, there was a lot more attention that was drawn to pipelines, although the pipeline that is in Thunderbird Strike is a different stretch of pipeline because there's not just one pipeline. This is the problem. <laughs> there are actually several of them. Beth is right. There's not just one pipeline. In fact, there are tons of them. To look at a map of oil pipelines in the United States, you might think you were looking at a highway map. I looked up just how many miles of pipeline are in the United States alone, and the number is shocking. 2.4 million miles. It's the largest network of energy pipelines in the world, and many of those pipelines run directly through indigenous land. There was one point where there was an actual real fire uh, up at Fort Mac where the tar sands are and, you know, lives were affected by that. And I remember I was watching footage from the fire as it was happening and there was lightning coming from the fire itself. Like that's how hot the fire was. It was generating its own lightning on the ground. And I was watching this and I was just like, wow, you know, this, these are our stories. This is what they say is going to happen. You know, so there will be fires and uh, there will be other catastrophes that happen leading up to people really having to answer to how they have been treating the lands and the waters. 
uh, there has to be some kind of change for us to sustain ourselves. And so I was really watching the stories unfold as I was working on the game. You know, we talk about a time when we will call upon Thunderbirds to help us, you know, and to bring about uh, attention to and protection of the lands and of the waters. And so really that's happening is that the Thunderbirds uh, are a form of storms in some stories. In some stories they are um, identified really as a genuine prehistoric bird, which was very dangerous and was known to come during storms because that's when the tension in the air would be appropriate to carry the weight of these just ginormous uh, thunderbirds. So we cannot tell thunderbirds what to do. Uh, they are there to make their own decisions and our hope is that that's one of protection. Thunderbird Strike is a side-scrolling game. Beth describes it as retro. But there's one notable difference between Thunderbird Strike and most of the classic side-scrollers Beth grew up with. Where most games scroll left to right, Thunderbird Strike scrolls right to left. It read to me in a couple of ways. It sort of read to me as, this, as an inversion of the way that we you know, typically play side-scrollers, but also the way that we typically read history or something textually. Mm -hmm. You know, we read left to right. But it also kind of mimics the westward movement of colonial expansion. Is that something you, you were thinking about at all? I know it's just a simple right to left movement, yeah. but it seemed to be pretty loaded for me. It, it, yeah, it is very loaded and there are layers of meaning. Um, those are great interpretations and certainly spot on. And then there's another one too, uh, which is at the heart of it, which is that, so I'm, uh, and so when we're standing in Bawating, you're looking to the south across St. Mary's River, which is the river my family uh, crossed a lot. And so uh, from our worldview, you're actually looking at the journey from the tar sands in Alberta all the way to the Great Lakes as a right-to-left journey. So it's intended to represent how one, you know, how a thunderbird would actually make motion from that direction, but it's from a particular worldview. You just kind of think about that. Like, you know, in terms of maps and everything, typically people orient their minds towards the north, right? Like, okay, you're always looking in the direction north. Um, but actually in my community, you're considering a, a different perspective, which is that, uh, you know, you're looking down to the south and understanding a different directionality. Another thing that struck me about the game was that it was really hard. As I flew across the landscape, a lot of buildings and machines were going untouched, and it didn't seem like it was even possible to destroy them all. I asked Beth if the game's difficulty was telling its own story. It's never going to be perfect, and we have to accept that, that it will be a matter of what can we do, what can be done in this moment because there will be such a process here to healing, right? It's not as simple as just saying, okay, we need to take down this and take down that and revive this and revive that. There's a whole process at play here, and it requires revisiting. And so we have to go in this motion where we go over and over and over again and continue to repeat the process. And so really the gameplay is meant to reflect that. 
If it's really about asking what can we do, Beth has been doing a lot. Thunderbird Strike is just one of many games that Beth has developed in the last few years. In 2016, she released a tablet game called Honor Water. So Honor Water is a singing game, which is in Anishinaamon, which is my language, and you learn water songs through it. There is a beginner song, an intermediate, and an advanced. And so there are some features of it that are very game-like, and then there are some that are not. So uh, you can pause a song at any point and interact with the phrases and learn more about each phrase and its root and um, really, like, engage yourself in the language. And then um, one of the pieces about it uh, that was a is a moment where I answered to community members, right, and and elders uh, as well as youth and other community members, of course, and then people that I'm collaborating with that might be on the team. And in this case, elders determined that they did not want a feedback system where the game can hear your voice and then judge you in any kind of way because there's already been a lot of shame built in about the loss of our languages and our ability to speak. And so they were really just against the idea of having anything that would have like a scoring system. And so we removed any kind of idea of having a scoring system from the very beginning. So that's something that's interesting to me about that game and is important to understand that, you know, uh, in the context of indigenous games, which are self-determined, it's really important to honor the communities that we are collaborating with and answer to their design choices. look into grant funding for language, most of the funding is about archiving, so recording, and then it just stops there. And I really want to focus on, well, how do we get the next generation of language speakers rolling with this? And so that's the kind of work that I'm doing. And uh, I really feel that technology can be a component. You know, it's certainly not a replacement. It should never be seen as a replacement, but it is a way to, in my opinion, create a sense of safety and comfort because when you enter the idea of speaking language in a playful way and not in a way in which you are being graded right or judged uh, but rather it's very playful that it can offer a pathway to then getting deeper into language learning A year before Honor Water, Beth released a game called Invaders. It's a play on the classic arcade game Space Invaders. Right away, there's there's this play on the word invaders, but also kind of inherently there's, underneath it, there's this play on the word aliens as well, which doesn't, doesn't only speak to the indigenous experience, but it also speaks to the contemporary conversation about immigration, you know, and all these mm-hmm. things, of course, are related. But can you talk about what the the immigration debate in the States 
just even looks like from an indigenous perspective. I imagine that there's a lot of irony. Oh, yeah, extreme irony. And especially since a lot of people on the other sides are indigenous, right? I mean, that's the other thing of it is like the main people being targeted here are also indigenous people. And so, you know, yeah, it's, it's, completely surreal I think really is the only way I can describe it and so you know in invaders that of course was made before uh, what has unfolded since but um, it definitely is a good way to start discussion about that uh, because invaders focuses on the idea of colonizers as the aliens and as the process of invasion and I mean, it's a little bit depressing in a sense because the point there is, yeah, you're going for a high score, but you do always eventually lose. So, you know, you do eventually die because that's how space invaders works. And so it was a great mechanic to use as a metaphor for the process of colonization, not to be depressing, but, you know, laughter is medicine. And that's how I roll with things. And there are definitely a lot of people who get that kind of dark sense of humor out of it. One of the other pieces about that game is that um, when you're first playing, uh, I've watched players get confused a little bit for a period of time because they're expecting the other characters that are with them to start shooting arrows up at the invaders at some point, too, because it figures, oh, maybe I'm going to get a power up and then these other characters are going to help me and like because they're all different. Well, when you get hit, you lose a life, and you actually lose one of those characters. And those are um, photos uh, from uh, a piece which Stephen Paul Judd did um, on, you know, referring to invaders and invasion. And so those are real people. And there's this moment then where the player has to let it sink in. Oh wait, this is a representation of me and my community, and when you lose someone, you lose someone. You know, there is no, here's another life and you're starting over again. It's game over when it's game over. You know, this this concept of always losing or just the kind of infinity of the the onslaught that's happening in Invaders also relates to an idea that I've, I've heard you speak about before, which is the idea that, that a post-apocalypse is not science fiction for the indigenous mm-hmm. community, that it's, it's very present. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up from uh, with that understanding from my mom, uh, Grace Dillon, and she coined the term indigenous futurism and uh, worked on an anthology, the first ever collection of indigenous science fiction stories. Uh, where she put together, you know, curated essentially uh, this collection. And she really was the one who raised me that way, you know, with that understanding. And uh, certainly that's a commonality. It's like, you know, commonly understood in indigenous communities. It's like people talk about this post-apocalypse as if it's the state that's going to happen. It's just like, I am actually the (laughs) post-apocalypse. You know, look at me. Um, I am what they intended to do to us, right, through the generations. And so uh, I think in that sense then that all of my work is about bringing attention to that, right, that 
we are always in a state of then resilience already. And it was just like you're saying, it's like we cannot be about preserving and it's not about the past. It's very much about being present now. Uh, it's about honoring those who came before us. And it's also about considering what is ahead for the next generation. Indigenous stories are an important part of Beth's games, but it's also important, she says, to see beyond the stories alone. Also, though, look at the design, because I think that's the key piece for me that I get really excited about is like, what other kinds of forms of gameplay can we have based on our teachings and our ways of knowing and interacting? This influence on the very structure of modern gaming has already happened. Indigenous developers have been involved in game design since the very beginning. In 1991, id Software was founded by John and Adrian Carmack, Tom Hall, and a man named John Romero. Romero was a vital part of the creation of a few of id's medium-changing games. In a world of 8-bit Nintendos and 2D side-scrollers, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom fundamentally changed the gaming industry by becoming the world's first-ever first-person shooters. Romero was a crucial part of the development process. John Romero was foundational to expanding the idea of the representation of space and games, right? I mean, that was a huge part of his work um, because he was really integral to the code. And through conversations with him, you know, I've seen um, versions of the kind of work that he was doing and the iterations of it back when he was first beginning, and you can see a path by which uh, it really was his contribution that was expanding us dimensionally, right? And the interesting thing about him is that he is Yaqui and Cherokee, and he grew up with uh, access to ceremonial teachings and in our knowledges um, as Anishinaabeg, we talk about multiple dimensions and so on. And so I can see that reflected in the kind of work that he was doing. And I think that's what it's going to take is like we really need to make changes from the code up. And so Romero really was foundational to making that possible. Right. And more recently, he has been revisiting that part of himself in the sense of like, you know, he did make games that were for everyone and appealed to everyone and didn't in a way have anything that you could look at it and be like, that is clearly a native game. Um, but more recently, he is working on a game with uh, an indigenous scientist as the player character. And so it's coming back around again in his life at a later point because, you know, early on, it wasn't something that the media wanted to put attention on, right? Like, he was definitely whitewashed uh, as a developer, and I think that's part of the story that has been lost for us, is to say that actually Indigenous game developers have been around for a really long while, and you don't need to make an Indigenous game if you are Indigenous. You Your game is Indigenous because you're Indigenous, right? And I think that that's really important to keep in mind. Most of Beth's games are designed for mobile devices. I asked her about this. Why design a game for an iPhone rather than a PlayStation? Accessibility. That's really my big emphasis, is that I want it to be 
you know, out to as many people as possible. And, you know, I was living in a place where you (laughs) can't stream content, right, online. And in order to work on games, I would have to drive about 30 minutes down to town to catch the wireless signal out of the library for free and, you know, send files and then go back up the hill and then, you know, do these rotations. And so very early on, you know, it was very important for me to make games that can be downloaded when you do have internet and then can be played without any need to have internet once you're back home. Beth feels that technology in general has a larger role to play in the flourishing of indigenous culture. You know, I had a conversation with Ryan McMahon about this uh, years ago, and we got really excited about the idea of talking through tech islands, like reservations as tech islands, and that that could actually be a really viable business source for people if that was something that we invested in and built bases around. And so I think that there's a lot of possibility there and a lot of work in uh, expanding technology. I know that at Batchawana First Nation, their emphasis is on diversifying technology, and I think that that's incredibly important. So they have both wind power and solar power, so you're not relying on one source. The key here is diversification, and, you know, that I believe will be a key part of how we will continue on. You know, we cannot just throw everything into one focus. We need to still be focused, but uh, really understand that there are many possibilities and to help then ensure a balance so that we don't become imbalanced in one direction or another and so that there will be many different opportunities for many people uh, in, you know, and that is in regards to work in terms of self-determination, and that is really what is foundationally key to sovereignty, true sovereignty, true power is the ability to clean our own water, the ability to have our own electricity, to, you know, have basic access to health, you know, all of this, and food, right, to grow our own food. All of these are very important aspects uh, as we move on and, you know, look to the way that things were before as well. You know, I know that I have relatives who think of home as a particular space and time and a place, and they reference the place names. And then I also have relatives who are very much about, you know, where are you right now and where is your heart at? Uh, And so it's really then about your heart. And I think that I've noticed, of course, that, you know, the relatives who emphasize the heart then are people who have been more displaced. You know, maybe they're like living in Sault Ste. Marie and they're connected to the res, but they're not on the res. Um, They're enrolled, but nonetheless, you know, they're they're able to then understand that wherever they are, you know, that's where your home is. And I think that, you know, people who are very land-based can have that perspective as well. For myself, it's been the teachings and also that it's not a given. It's about your relationality and your respect with the land that you're at. So, Home is where are you being reciprocal and are you answering to the land and the waters and the animals and the other forms of life there 
and that's ongoing you know that's it's not a given and I think that that is what is important to me about it is you know you don't ever presume that you can take from the land uh, that you're there because it is your given right uh, it is a part of a relationship that you have Level two, going home. Don Sauce is a games journalist who recently moved back in with their mom and stepdad in what Don calls the middle of nowhere West Virginia. The move back has been difficult. Their relationship with their parents has always been complicated and moving back has forced Don to relive some childhood trauma. But playing in the back of their mind during this whole transition has been a video game called Gone Home. Gone Home is a game by the Fulbright Company, came out in 2013, and on its surface, it's simple. You play as Katie Greenbrier, a college student returning home for the summer after a semester abroad. And where you might expect a warm homecoming, you find nothing. Darkness, an empty house, and a note from your younger sister Sam, which says basically, don't try to find out what happened here. So you find the key, open the front door, and you try to find out what happened here. Where is your father Terry, the failed writer making a living reviewing electronics? Where is your mother Janice, the environmental conservationist who might be having an affair? Where is your sister Sam, who recently came out as queer and whose only real lifeline, her girlfriend Lonnie, is about to leave her to go to basic training? You walk around the house, opening drawers, rummaging through closets, reading notes, trying to find out what transpired in the Greenbrier house. Is your family just out running errands? Or did something else happen? Something awful? Gone Home is a beautiful, moving game. And when it came out a few years ago, it received almost universal acclaim. But for Don, it was different. It was personal. Don wrote an article called Gone Home and Familial Queer Trauma about their relationship to the game and what it means to them. Don was kind enough to read the article for this episode, but before I play that, I should give a quick content warning. The article contains references to sexual assault and suicidal ideation, so if those are sensitive issues for you, please proceed with caution. Okay, here's Don. I'm at my dad's for the evening. Back in June, I realized I was in a suicidal, depressive state. I was in the, oh, transitioning is harder than just saying you're trans phase of coming out as non-binary. I was living in toxic health conditions with another severe depressive. The most intimate friendship I'd had in the last decade ended suddenly and forcefully, and it took away two more recent friendships that were vital in me accepting I was genderqueer. 2017, in all of its misery and greed and cruelty, was happening in national and local politics. Nazis were emboldened each day. They killed publicly. Rape culture was on full display through our president 
and the litany of post-Weinstein revelations more recently, I was finally confronting the trauma of being a sexual assault survivor, as well as reckoning with how rape and sexual violence plagued so many of the closest women in my family and my dearest friends. There weren't days where I didn't think about killing myself. There were occasional hours where I could be more productive than just lying in my bed, almost catatonic. But that was only if I was high. I had just dragged myself across the finish line of my final semester of college at 28, and I was only able to batter my corpse across that achievement because I had started going to class high. It was the only way I could force myself to be around people. I was tired of having to be high 24-7 to function in any meaningful way. I also knew that it had been a long time since I had functioned in any meaningful way, even when I was stoned. I was tired of living in a house that was in a state of total disrepair and feeling like I was the only person doing anything to take care of it. I couldn't afford to live in Morgantown after I graduated from college because I had been too depressed to write for months. I had a brief period in the spring where I pitched five consecutive articles to Waypoint. It was some of the best, most consistent work I've ever done. And then I just totally fell apart. I put together a photo essay on No Man's Sky and gender dysphoria, and squeaked out a blog post on They Live, but, mostly, I was just getting high and playing Stellaris and Hearts of Iron 4, and fantasizing about science fiction and old history novels I'd never be sober enough to write. I needed to escape. I needed a reset. I needed a place where I knew somebody would make sure I didn't kill myself, and where I wouldn't have access to the drugs I had to give up. I had that escape. I swallowed my pride, and I moved into the basement garage of my mom and stepdad's home. My mother and I didn't speak to each other from November of 2002 to March of 2008. Our relationship is much better now than it was when I was younger, but it's still complicated, and we are emotional landmines for each other. We feel each other's pain so acutely, but speak such a fundamentally different language that it's difficult to have a conversation, even when we try. Between attempting to figure out what it meant to have a substantive relationship with my mother, as well as sobering up, my suicidal ideation was at its strongest. Particularly in the first few months of an emotional labor-intensive job for a public utility that I started a couple months after I moved into my mother's home. I go to my dad sometimes too, usually on the weekends, but sometimes on weekdays. Their homes are almost equidistant from my current job. There's no cell service at my dad's. The internet barely functions. If I need a night or a weekend where I can just detach almost completely from the outside world, his house is where I have to be. My mom and stepdad also live out in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, but their county is where current U.S. Senator and former Governor Joe Manchin is from. Their county has access to amenities my home county does not have. My dad's place is the house I grew up in as a teenager. Once my mom and I had our schism, I lived there with my dad. For the first couple months after the divorce, if it was my dad's weekend to have my sister and I, all three of us slept in the same bed. Eventually, my grandmother gave me a bed of my own. It was in the living room. Finally, a year or two later, I got my own room, which had been used as a storage closet for an aunt's Star Trek memorabilia for years. Eventually, we got the whole top floor of the apartment, and I got a bigger room, and my little sister got my old, much smaller room. 
The apartment was supposed to be a short-term solution for my dad as he got on his feet after my parents divorced. He's been living there for 15 years. I wanted to get to bed and finish slash fine-tune an essay I had been writing on Mindhunter and the inadequacy of liberal critiques of systemic social issues. It needs some work. I might return to it in the future. I was at my dad's because after two days in a row where I worked overtime, I needed to detach from the world. I changed out of my work clothes and into pajama pants and a t-shirt. I had packed my gone home shirt and its beautiful purple caught my eyes when I was choosing what to take out of my backpack. I bought the shirt years ago. It couldn't have been long after the game came out. I bought it because I wanted a piece of gone home clothing. I rarely order clothes off the internet, but I wanted a gone home shirt and I wanted it right then. I remember watching stream friends play maybe 15 minutes or so of the game, then turning off the stream because I didn't want any more of the story spoiled for me. I immediately bought the game on Steam and then beat it in one setting the second it downloaded. I was sobbing uncontrollably through the game's final 10 minutes. The only other game to ever make me feel so deeply and primally as Gone Home is Night in the Woods. I may like Firewatch more than either, but Gone Home captured my heart in a way no other game had before, and only one has since. My first playthrough of Gone Home was one of the first times I really reckoned with how deeply traumatized I was by feeling forced to live my life in the closet. Unlike Sam, I don't have a Lonnie story from high school. I didn't go on my first date with a man until I was in my mid-twenties, years after I had started coming out as bi to my closest friends. I was so deep in the closet that I didn't come out to myself as being bi till I was 21. I identify as queer now, but recognizing that liking men was even a possibility took me two decades of shame and guilt to work through. Realizing I wasn't a man took nearly another decade. At the end of Gone Home, you work your way to the attic of the Greenbrier home. The game has given plenty of hints that Sam has committed suicide. Her parents refuse to reckon with the fact that their daughter is a lesbian. Sam's sister is prancing around Europe, and her girlfriend is shipping out for basic training. I was weeping like I was at a family member's funeral as I made my way up those attic stairs. It turned out Sam was alive. Lonnie went AWOL, and she and Sam ran off together. But before the game revealed its bittersweet ending, I was so sure that Sam was dead because I knew that if I were in her shoes, I wouldn't have been able to keep going. Afterwards, as I began to recover emotionally, when I realized the game's ending wasn't as pitch black as I expected, I realized that I had been in Sam's shoes. I thought Sam had killed herself, because that's what I would have done if I hadn't been in the closet to myself when I was her age. As much as I love Gone Home, it's something I have a lot of complex feelings about. If you take the premise of the game seriously at all, Katie Greenbrier can be something of a monster. She spends her entire first evening back in the U.S. rifling through the most intimate experiences and feelings of her family without their consent. The ending is a little bit of escapist fantasy that is also a lot darker if you think about it for even a second. Lonnie abandons the one thing that she could have a career in. Sam is not an adult yet and not finished with high school and runs off with her girlfriend. The way the game handles sexual assault in the Greenbrier family is a little more oblique than I think the subject matter requires. 
It is also a story about economic privilege that I will never comprehend. But despite those critiques, Gone Home is a game that showed me signs of myself I had never considered before. That is the thing you should ask for in art. That it pushes you out of comfort zones. That it transforms your entire perspective of the world after you're finished. And as I've returned to my homes, Gone Home only feels more potent. The tragic loneliness of Janice Greenbrier. The desperate, depressive delusions of Terry Greenbrier. The compromised values to pay your bills the familial isolation, the barriers that religion and politics can erect between those who should care about us the most, the ease with which we can ignore severe mental health issues in our parents through distractions like popular entertainment and the simple fact that we know that if we acknowledge mental health issues in them, we might see them in ourselves. Gone Home takes place in the 90s. Does Sam ever return, or does she run away forever? At her age, it's not hard to think that the cops pick her and Lonnie up eventually. What would Sam say if she went to that home now? She would be in her 40s. Would she remember hiding in the basement with Lonnie, discovering Riot Girl, making zines, and raging against machines? Or would she fixate on the frustration and repression that made her run away in the first place? Would she recognize how dissatisfied her mother had always been? Are Terry and Janice even still together? Would Sam be able to forgive, or would the bitterness still be there? Will her father be any better, or will he be unable to reckon with how serious his depression and trauma are? Will he be stuck in the stasis he's been in since the 1960s? I go home. I see my bedroom. I'm flooded by memories. Memories of my two best friends locking me and a gender nonconforming girl in that room. They knew I liked her. She knew I liked her. It was some cruel sexual ritual I didn't understand that mostly involved me staying on the opposite end of the room of this girl who was sitting on my bed because Christianity had me completely fucked up about heterosexual romance too. The girl was part of a crew that had assaulted me in the name of jokes for years. Memories of giving that room to a gender nonconforming college girlfriend who had raped me months before. She was staying with my family for Christmas because she couldn't go home to her abusive father, and I was so lonely and in the closet and immersed in patriarchal values that I couldn't articulate the ways she was abusing me. I see my living room. I see my dad and my dad's dog sitting in the same spots on the same furniture we've had for a decade, watching the same TV shows we've been watching for more than a decade. Failing to confront the depression that has consumed his entire life. Failing to confront the emotional and psychological abuse he endured as a child. Only just now reckoning with his own internalized misogyny because my queer sister and I forced him to. The Sauce home and the Greenbrier home couldn't be more different. Appalachian working class versus Pacific Northwest upper middle class. But the things that make families powder kegs are all there. The things that make our family our closest friends and the most inscrutable strangers are all there. The way it hints at the things we have to say to each other and never can are all there. It's a miracle any of us can ever go home.
Level 3. Screaming in Simlish. The hair is honestly, I this is the part where I'm very stereotypically a girl, is that the hair in The Sims is like my favorite thing. Because it, it looks, it's never, my hair will never look this good. It's never going to look as good as it looks in this game. A couple weeks ago, my friend Bronte came over to my apartment to play her favorite video game, The Sims. The Sims first came out in 2000, and there have been a few versions since then. It's made by Electronic Arts, the same company that made SimCity way back in the day. And it's what's called a sandbox game, meaning that there's no real plot or point. The player creates a family, builds a house, and lives. There's a pair of like slippers that were Gucci slippers that someone had turned into shoes in The Sims, and I've always wanted those slippers. The last... Nope, here they are. Those are Gucci slippers on my Sims nice. feet. When Bronte came over, the first thing we did was create ourselves. No, that's bad. Way too much. Walk back the scruff. <laughs> No, they're not gonna. I definitely don't. look at look at how hot he is compared to my actual face. He needs much less scruff. This is, this is like this is like Zac Efron plays me in the biopic. It's a lot of fun, but for Bronte, it's more than fun. The Sims has been an important part of Bronte's life, but to understand what the Sims meant to Bronte growing up, we should take a step back. Let's get all of you introduced. My name is Bronte Mansfield. I am a writer and an audio producer. I live in Chicago. Chicago is where Bronte and I met, but before she moved to the city, Bronte's life looked a lot different. I was raised in the middle of nowhere. There, I'm from Avalon, Wisconsin, which has a population of about 100 people. Uh, I grew up in a house with an English major who surrounded us with books. Uh, but we never really left. We were just hermits. And uh, <laughs> we didn't really do after-school activities. We didn't really go places. Uh, I was surrounded by nature. There were farm fields everywhere, and there were chickens and goats, and there was a, a tiny little house that someone cut hair out of the, her living room, and they had a horse out front. So it was just a very rural place. Um, we didn't get internet for so long. Um, and then when we did it, it was dial-up. Uh, that sound. Uh, and it's, that's because they couldn't actually figure out how to get internet to us for a long time. So my town just didn't have high-speed internet and Wi-Fi. We, the day we got Wi-Fi was like a big freaking deal. Rural Wisconsin, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, demographically, like, we were the we were the only kids for a long time, so I didn't even have like kids growing up around. We were just alone with a bunch of adults, and so my brother and I—I I have a little brother who's two years younger than me—we uh, would just run around outside for most most of the time, and so we spent a lot of our time in our imaginations and usually replicating. We were like live action fan fictioning, like Xena, Warrior Princess. My mother is. This is gonna abrupt change, but my mother is a doomsday prepper. Uh, so when before Y two K, we installed like a hand pump outside for well water. We had stockpiles of food and water in the basement. Um, There's a lot of guns in the house. Pretty much, if shit went down, Avalon, Wisconsin, was the place to be. Um, so no, not a ton of technology. I think because Y two K did scare my mother a little bit. 
and she worked on computers in college um, and she had done programming and things like that in college. And I think that uh, she feared our dependency on it. So not a ton. So that's interesting. So she knew all about it. She just had intentionally moved away. She had chosen to not engage with it after a certain point. Yeah. So we moved to rural Wisconsin because it was a lot easier to create a hermit kingdom in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so the hermit kingdom aspect wasn't by accident. It was- oh, it was by on purpose. Absolutely. And we were pretty isolated because the only way to get to anyone was with a car. And when you're a kid, obviously you can't dictate when or where you go anywhere. So it was pretty much just school and home. But yeah, we went to school uh, in a nearby town that took... It was a, really just a 15-minute drive, but it was an hour-long bus ride because I was on the bus where they would pick up all the farm kids. So drive from farm to farm to farm to farm and go to school. And yeah, it was the same same less than 100 kids in our class, and we all knew each other from the time we were four until we were 18. When I was probably 11 or 12, all my friends were playing The Sims. And I would go over to their houses to play The Sims. And so at some point, someone, I really don't know who, gave me The Sims for the house, at my mom's house. And that gift of The Sims, The Sims 1, the original Sims, uh, it came in a boxy jewel case with CDs. And it took like four CDs to load the base game. It had a blue cover. It was just the most exciting thing I had encountered. And... Around that time, that gift coincided with my parents' separation. Yeah, when I was 12, I went went to sixth grade camp. It's a requirement for every kid in our school district to go for a week to a, a sleepaway camp. And when I left, everything was normal. And when I came back, the day I came back from sixth grade camp where I canoed and Someone had gotten her period for the first time in the cabin, and like someone else got a tick. The later had lime in it. It was awful. It was just the worst. But when I got back, uh, I had I went in a circle around the house, just like being very excited to be back in my house. And I remember walking through from room to room. It was a circle. I'd never really thought of it before, but the, it was a circle. And I was walking back around to where I'd come in the the mud room. That's what we call that. Um, and my mom was like, "We have to talk." And she sat my brother and I down. And I've been home from six year camp maybe five minutes. She's like, your father and I are getting divorced. And they had been waiting to separate until I got back from six year camp. And so my father went to an apartment. My mother stayed and we stayed in the same house. And then I just slipped into The Sims. The Sims was all I did. And then around that same time, uh, my father uh, started dating a woman named Michelle and then she introduced us to her children and that was the true beginning of who I am as a person now because up until that point I've been a very shy very introverted kid who respected authority to a fault and then I was confronted with two people that I, I just hated <laughs> I can't even even now, I still kind of hate my step-siblings. Um, so uh, I met Marissa and Josh, were my step-siblings. And when I first met my step-siblings, especially Marissa, 
I later realized I had met them before, many years before, when I was in fourth grade, when they were at the same gym daycare as I was. And that was because my dad was having an affair with this woman at the gym. And these kids that I could not stand at the gym, my least favorite kids at the same gym daycare later became my step-siblings. And I had hated them then, and then I hated them when they merged into our family. More than anything, what caused strife with my stepsister is that we were just two like 13-year-old girls living in the same space. And for the first time, I had a an, a, an outlet where I could just focus anger. <laughs> and that was and it was on her. And so my father with his new wife uh, moved in to a house in Rockford, Illinois. And that house was shaped like a U, which will become important later. <laughs> but uh, at that house, it was a very it was the opposite of my mother's house. It was very new in comparison to that house to my mom's house that I grew up in. It was from like the 80s. All the furnishings were super modern in comparison and it was a to me a very sterile place instead of like a warm like old-fashioned place that I had grown up in. At my father's house, one of the things that he did in the wake of the divorce to try and win my brother and I back was bought us pretty much anything we wanted. So we got a we had a brand new computer there and I could finally play The Sims 2, which is what all my friends have been playing while I had been stuck with Sims 1. And then the other thing that happened also was that because the house was shaped like a U, uh, my dad and my stepmother and stepfamily were on one side of the house and they couldn't hear what was happening on the other side of the U. So that's where my brother and I would spend most of our time. And we would also stay up until like three in the morning, even on school nights, playing video games. So he would be in the basement playing on his console on one side of the U and I'd be on the same side of the U, but in the upstairs playing The Sims. It was the only thing I looked forward to about going to his house. I had so much anger um, at everyone involved in this situation and my father for cheating on my mother and then marrying the woman he cheated on my mother with at her children for existing, I guess. And I would leave at the end of an emotionally draining weekend and I would go to my mother's house for the week. And one of the things that I started to do at my mother's house when I was playing Sims 1, which was I I created tiny versions of my stepsister and I made a lot of them. I made as many as a household could accommodate. I think that was eight at the time in The Sims 1. So I just made eight copies of my stepsister, and then I found ingenious ways to kill her. And yeah, for other people, I think that they, it's just funny to kill your sims, but I was like, I needed to take my anger out on something. So I had these like, I don't know, digital voodoo dolls that I was attacking my stepsister with and so one the easy the most ridiculed way to kill a sim is to just put them in a pool and then take away the ladder because then they just swim until they starve and they just die um and then they just they curl up in a little ball on the surface of the pool and then the grim reaper comes and takes them away it's it's truly magnificent (laughs) way for a sim to die and then if a tv is broken and an inexperienced sim tries to fix it they will electrocute themselves Um, But my personal favorite way to kill a sim, um, because starving is just lazy, I will say. People can just like, you can just lock a sim in a room. But my my particular brand of murdering a sim was to build a little like out, an outhouse type situation 
um, away from the main house, put the sim in there, take away the doors, put a bunch of couches in there. And then there was this thing, this like rocket launcher thing you could get in the Sims one. It was a firework launcher. It's just a giant rocket launcher, comically large rocket launcher. Um, everything else, the Sims like can veer back and forth between being realistic and being just comical. And this is one of those comical, ridiculous things. So giant rocket launcher. And so I would just put the Sim in there with the rocket launcher and a room full of couches. And the best thing is that the Sims have free will. And in the Sims 2, you can kind of like turn off their free will. So you can kind of turn it, you can slide. It's like a sliding scale of how much they will do without your command. But in the Sims 1, I don't remember if you could control that, but I, I knew that I didn't have to do anything. I would just put her in the room with the rocket launcher and the couches, and she would, by just sheer need to light that rocket launcher, she would walk up to it <laughs> and light it, and it would go up into the air through the roof because physics doesn't work in the Sims, and then it would come down a few moments later, and it would land on one of the couches, and it would immediately light the couches on fire. And then all the couches would start lighting on fire. And then she would die in a fiery pile. <laughs> and, and she would be a pile of ashes. I think what's interesting about it, though, is that there are lots of games where you kill things. You know, that's what first-person shooters are all about. And your avatar, you have an avatar, and, like, you are kind of direct, you're directly making the killing happen. But in this game and the way that you're using it you create this situation in which your sister is killing herself unwittingly like there's <laughs> you're like you're casting her into this role of this like dim-witted like she's so dim-witted that she is causing her own horrific death yeah for your amusement you know like you're actually kind of removed from the death in a way oh yeah there's the fastest way to feel like God is to just play The Sims. You don't have to do anything. They just take care of it. It's, I didn't kill her, technically. She killed herself. It was cathartic. It was just all this rage I had as like a young woman, a kid still really. I was like probably 13, 12 or 13 at this point. And I just needed... I needed something. And my parents put me in dance around this time too. They put me in like jazz dance, like like make me so I work out some of my anger in like movement. They should have put me in like some kind of karate or something because I was so angry. But I did what I could with the jazz and then I went home and murdered my stepsister and the Sims. <laughs> so like why do you think why do you think that you didn't kill your parents or your step parents or like even other siblings. I did not feel the need. And even though I knew, because I had figured out that my father had cheated on my mother, um, and I had confronted him about it even. I was a precocious 12-year-old. Um, but I wasn't... I don't think I could quite yet conceptualize being angry at someone older than me. You know, I couldn't see the ways that the adults were making my life hard. It's like... It sounds like The, like the Sims a lot. Like, The Sims don't know that you're... <laughs> They don't know why they're in this room with couches and like a rocket launcher. You reference like playing God, but it also is like playing matriarch or patriarch. You're like parenting these little, I don't know, you're like recreating that like situation in a digital yeah. way. I didn't realize it at the time, but like when you were a kid, 
there are forces that just move you around. I think I was kind of jonesing for control because I didn't have any. I didn't get to choose my schedule. I didn't get to choose which parent I stayed with. There would have been a nasty custody battle if that happened. Um, And yeah, I felt very powerless. And people that say that girls are attracted to The Sims because they get to play dollhouse, I think are missing a point, which is that girls are attracted to The Sims because it's the only place that they can readily see themselves being in total control. And I wasn't the only girl that I knew that was doing this with The Sims. The friends that I had were almost all divorced, divorced parent households. I had a close group of friends who had had all had some kind of family trauma or other. Um, one had lost a father quite young. Another had had a divorce, a divorce happen, and her father lived in California, so very far from Wisconsin. And the other, my other friend had um, general like housing insecurity, so the, her their family lost their house and they moved to like a trailer park later. Um, and we were all from a pretty economically depressed part of Wisconsin. Um, but one time, one of my friends, whose name was Samantha, her house was like sleep over ground zero. There were fashion shows and there was running through the cornfields in the middle of the night. She had rabbits in the like in the garage. Um, but then she got The Sims too. And then she got like all the expansion packs. And we got really obsessed with it. <laughs> and we all played together. But her aunt was over one day for Samantha's birthday party. And then she noticed us playing The Sims. And what I didn't know then was that her aunt, who I believe her name was Beth, she, was, unbeknownst to me, was involved with a study on, on video games at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she started asking us a bunch of questions informally at this birthday party. And this I remember pretty vaguely. I was really focused on the cake. But just general questions like, what do you use The Sims for? Like, why are you playing this? And at one point I said, like, I made a comment about killing my stepsister over and over and over again in this game. And she looked at me like I was an alien and then she looked at me like, ooh, <laughs> like this is interesting. The same way any academic type person is like, I have just discovered something no one else has written a paper about. And <laughs> so um, she took our the existence of these four girls who played Sims back to her like research team at Madison. And they were like, oh, let's let's turn this into a formal research group and let's study these girls who are playing video games. And so what happened is that Every, I want to say every two weeks, maybe every month, we got, we all drove up to Madison in the same car and they had set up a computer lab for us and there would be pizza and all kinds of candy. And then a bunch of adults would just watch us play video games. (laughs) And then they started to kind of narrow in on what each of the girls was kind of most drawn to. We spent so much I think it was two years we were in this study there's a paper published about it they had us present at the games learning society conference which was a conference that ran in Madison for a number of years what's funny is that my friends and I even when we were being social we were doing a solitary activity yeah <laughs> um we I would do this I mean I go to my friend's house and he would play games on his computer and I would play his PlayStation yeah and we, you, we would be in the same room, but we would be playing separate things. And I think this is something that boys are socialized to do more than women. I think that we, or girls, they were told, like, girls spend summer parties talking about boys and stuff. And we were like, are there any more inventive ways that we can kill a sim? I think it's it's interesting because it sounds like something that the sims 
was able to do was like it's an outlet it was an outlet for anger we always characterize boys as like having aggression and rage and we have for some reason very little understanding that like obviously girls feel those things too we just give them less of a kind of vocabulary to to talk about them or experience them so it sounds like there are a few ways in which it sounds like the sims was like actually this this very maybe surprising like feminist outlet oh my god yeah What it was was just a way of trying on a range of emotions that girls aren't usually allowed to have. Like you can be, you can be happy and you can be sad. You can certainly cry, but you can't be angry. Like you're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to be bossy. God forbid. If you want any kind of control as a kid and you're a girl, I got called bossy 14 times a day by everyone around me. And yeah, more than anything, it was just an emotional outlet that we did not have anywhere else in our lives. All of us had only ever seen a certain very narrow example of what we could become. So we grew up in a very small town um, where women just became wives or they became, maybe they went and worked as nurses aides, Maybe they worked on the farm that they grew up on. It was a very narrow, narrow set of possibilities. And then The Sims, we were just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I could do fucking anything I wanted to do. And um, and so we were imagining our way out of these lives that we saw. As a kid, I was imagining this like type of apartment that I had never seen. I could never have seen this. I lived in the middle of nowhere. And everyone I knew was pretty poor. Um, But I was imagining, even at the time, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, the girls in Teen Vogue, they probably live in places like this. And I just was building my way out, I think. School didn't offer me any alternatives. My parents didn't really. My My mother was very educated, but she chose to put that aside to have kids and be a wife. And I just didn't have any examples of women that weren't just, yeah, essentially creating homes. And then, funnily enough, I do, I I was walking around campus one day when I was in college because I ended up going to UW-Madison. I got, I graduated high school early and was like, get me the fuck out of Dodge. I can't stay here anymore. I graduated high school early and I went to UW-Madison for my undergrad. And I was walking around and I like looked at one of the, of the campus buildings and there were like some stairs kind of descending and it was I realized it was the steps that I had gone down to go to this computer lab as a kid and I was like oh my god of course this was on Madison's campus I guess I had not put that together and I realized like that same little lab I haven't been back there but that same lab that I was studied like a weird mouse who <laughs> played a lot of sims and ate a lot of pizza um that and the conference that we went to both were like first glimpses into a college campus, first glimpses into academia, first glimpses out of my small town. Um, and it's I, I later did like fully leave. I live in Chicago now. I've lived in London and I've lived in Scotland. Um, but yeah, and I, I couldn't imagine any of that. 
But The Sims was more than just an outlet for Bronte's anger or a glimpse of another life. It actually set her directly on a path to what she's doing now, writing. The Sims is, uh, was a place for you to dabble in authorship. Oh, also. for sure. Like you're talking about reading a book and how it's great and you're transported, but you're not transporting yourself. You're, you're sort of being transported. And, you know, The Sims is a place where you get to actually write your own world and your own story. Yeah, it should come as no surprise that shortly after I was playing The Sims at my father's house, I started to write a ton of fan fiction. And I think that's a great way of starting to write because you, in The Sims, you have all the like the physical materials that you get to play with to create a narrative. And then in fan fiction, you have all of the really hard stuff is already set for you. So you have settings and characters. You already have that to play with and you can just focus on dialogue and plot which is really hard to do if you're also caught up in settings and characters so fan fiction i whenever people shit on fan fiction it's like my biggest pet peeve because it's just like the sims it's again categorized as like very feminine and ergo very unserious yeah for me it was emotional catharsis and the beginnings of an impulse to tell stories and what's so funny is that for many years, I did not talk about playing The Sims. Once I left high school, I never talked about it. And I would admit at some point, like, oh, yeah, like, I've been in this girls and gaming group. And, like, oh, yeah, like, we, we were in a study and it was super weird. And, like, I'm super weird for liking The Sims. And I'm like, wait, everyone is playing this game. Like, why am I so embarrassed about it? And I think because we do, like, shame it in a kind of gendered way. Like, oh, you're playing The Sims. That's cute. Like, I played Call of Duty. Like, how is that any more impressive? You were just shooting people. I was building worlds. <laughs> like... But don't worry, Bronte's sim story, it has a happy ending. I was certainly still ashamed of it in college and I needed to de-stress. And I was on a bus from Madison to Minneapolis and all I wanted to do was get a uh, a megabus seat where there were two open seats so I could turn my laptop towards uh, the aisle so I could sit with my back against the window and play The Sims so no one on either side of me could see that I was playing The Sims. But then a girl sat down next to me and I was like, fuck, now I can't play The Sims because she's just gonna like judge me for playing The Sims. I don't care about other people's opinions of me except about The Sims, which is very strange. I'm a pretty self-assured person, but The Sims, just a sore spot. And so I like reluctantly, I was finally like, oh man, I didn't bring enough to do on this trip. I'm gonna have to play The Sims. And never mind that I probably had a lot of reading to do, a thesis to write, whatever. Nope, I was sitting there and I pulled out my laptop and I was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna play The Sims. And at the same time, the girl next to me was pulling out her laptop and I was like, oh, she's probably gonna like do homework or write a paper like I should be doing. But then we both open our laptops at the same time and I look over and she's playing Sims 2 on her laptop and she looks over at me and I'm playing The Sims and she's like oh my god thank god you're playing The Sims I don't have to be embarrassed about this too now and it was so funny I took a picture of it and everything because and I posted that on the internet because it was so validating to have another person on the bus being embarrassed about playing The Sims on the bus and we just we just set like laughed about it for a bit and then like gave a little nod a little wave and we're like okay cool I'm gonna see you later I'm just gonna play The Sims now
This episode of Character Creator was produced by me and my enormous cat, Jimmy. We've also got a new producer who's also a cat, and her name is Callie. Callie's still getting used to the job. Her main focus right now is not jumping on my computer while I'm editing. I want to thank Beth LaPonce. People can definitely check out my work and what I'm up to at ElizabethLaPonce.com. Don Sass. You can find my writing um, at Paste and Waypoint and GameSpot. And I was also previously the managing editor of a website in New York City called Babel Music that covers the independent and alternative music scenes. And if you ever want to read any of my more personal writings, you can find them at my blog at www.newslang89.wordpress.com. I am an embarrassing stand for the shins. And Bronte Mansfield. One of the things I'm working on right now is a project with Brian. We are working on taking my mother's 800-page dystopian novel that's never been published and turning it into an audio fiction, a podcast that will premiere at some point. Then you can say stay tuned, right? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I also want to thank Sam Perry. Music for the show is by me and Names for Sounds. You can find more music at namesforsounds.com. If you like the show, please consider donating through our Patreon page. You'll be helping make sure I can afford to keep the show going, and you can get some cool rewards in return. You can find details at patreon.com slash charactercreatorpodcast. If you don't have money right now, I get it, believe me. But please consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. If you do, take a screenshot and email it along with your shipping address to charactercreatorpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll send you a Character Creator sticker. It's shaped like a Game Boy Color, and it looks really great, and it's free. Keep up with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, links to all the references in this episode can be found at our website, charactercreatorpodcast.com. 